the airwaves Here is my request You don't have to play it But I hope you'll do your best I've been listening to your show on the radio And you seem like a friend to me Howdy hi, Victoria Stand the man Hello Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420 3XY, how are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six, 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3 E, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420 3XY. Well, hi, and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. My name's Paul Walsh, and this is our 40 minutes or so where we catch up with the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. Today's pilot loves stretching his talents to the max. Reaching the top and then moving on seemed to be part of his DNA as he topped the ratings in multiple states on a number of different stations but never shied away from taking on new challenges. You can feel it all over for Hey, Kevin Hillier, welcome to Pilots and thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Paul. Great to be here. Good to chat about me. Okay, let's roll it right back, Kevin, to those teenage years in Brisbane and your days as a student at school. What were some of those reoccurring words that were written on your school reports? Uh, Easily distracted, um, could concentrate more, uh, Kevin could get more out of himself. All that sort of theme was, was basically Kevin's a bit of a distraction for the rest of the class. Um, you know, if he put his mind to it, he, he could far better results. That was sort of what Mrs. Kryle and Mrs. Palilo and Mr. Brooker and those people used to say about me. Okay, so Kevin Hillier could have concentrated a bit more at school, but but Kevin, what were some of the subjects that you really did enjoy at school? Uh, sport, obviously. I love sport. Um, uh, Queensland, I, I went to school in Queensland. I was born in Melbourne, but I went to school in Queensland. Uh, so I played a lot of cricket. Uh, I played rugby league. Played soccer in the later years at high school. So I loved sport. I loved economics and I loved uh, English in terms of I loved debating and I was on the debating team and all that sort of stuff. So they were the things I liked. I hated maths. I didn't like science, even though I loved the science teacher. We had an English teacher who was a complete nut of rat bag but would read Banjo Patterson poems to us um, and then wrestle us in the back of the classroom. Um, so they, they, they were the good memories. So when did you decide that you might have a crack at radio? Uh, I was about 10 or 11, I reckon, and Dad had a service station, and Dad was pretty promotionally conscious, so he actually arranged for a radio station to come and do an outside broadcast from uh, from the service station uh, on a rostered weekend. That was when service stations weren't open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so you got every about three or four times a year, you got a rostered weekend on, so you're open for the whole weekend, Saturday and Sunday. Dad had arranged uh, being a bit promotionally conscious. Got a, a radio station out there. So while I'm on the driveway working for Dad, pumping petrol, checking tyres, doing the oil, all the things that service stations used to do in the 70s, there's a bloke sitting in an air-conditioned caravan in the corner of our driveway playing records and talking. I'm sweeping the driveway. I'm sweating like a pig. I'm, you know, got petrol fumes and uh, all that. You know, it's horrible. Um, and he's sitting in the in an air-conditioned caravan drinking coffee, uh, playing records, records that I loved. And I thought, that's what I want to do. And that was pretty much when the penny dropped and all the all the ducks kind of lined up. I loved music and I liked talking and, and so it all sort of fell, in, fell into a, a little pattern then and that's what I've said, that's what I'll do for a living. The first appointment, of course, was in Longreach. What did you know about Longreach before you arrived? And I suppose what were some of the important lessons that you'd learned by the time you left? Uh, what I knew about Longreach was nothing <laughs> when I got there. Uh, I remember going and sitting with Sir Frank Moore in his office when they uh, at 4IP in Brisbane uh, because they were sister stations. They, there was a network station. And uh, I'm looking at a map behind Sir Frank on the wall, which had all these little dots, Charleville, Longreach, Mount Isa, you know, big, uh, big sort of one where 4IP was. And he's talking away. And I'm, th- I'm 16 and I'm thinking I'm, I'm, well, he's offering me a job. 
I'm starting at 4IP. I'm going to be, you know, Mr. 4IP in Brisbane. I'm it. I, I can't wait to tell my mates this. Oh, <laughs> you're beauty. Uh, and then in the course of the conversation, he mentioned the word Longreach and he kept talking and I'm looking, thinking, why did, why did he say Longreach? Why did that come up in the conversation? I'm looking. And then I see on the map this little dot, which is approximately a thousand miles northwest of Brisbane, where I was sitting. Uh, and I said, why Longreach? And he said, well, that's where you're going. Oh, okay. Uh, so I, uh, I got my head around that, uh, leaving home at 16 and went there. And that 12 month period, I, I, I left 12 months after I started, um, was the greatest learning experience in radio I've ever had. Uh, you did everything. Um, I, I was growing up, obviously, as a 16 year old, leaving home, staying in a, in a, a, a family house at the start and then moved into the uh, the 4LG flat. So I learned a lot about life and I learned a lot about radio, an awful lot about radio um, in terms of uh, a learning experience. When you're out doing the sales, you're out doing OBs, you're out, you're writing the copy, you're producing the commercials, you're doing everything, but you're actually doing it because you love it and because you want to learn it. That was, that was spectacular. I loved it. It was great 12 months. Now, obviously, the big break came with the job at 4IP when the station was right on top of its game. So how did you land the gig there, and what was it like walking into the biggest radio station in Brisbane? Uh, interesting. Um, I'd had a little taste of it because I'd, I'd come down from uh, Longreach and gone home uh, and then gone into 4IP, and I had actually had to drive a, four, a car up uh, to Toowoomba because I went to Toowoomba next to 4WK after Longreach. Um but walking into 4IP was, was daunting. Um, I was a cocky 17, 18-year-old, uh, I think. I just turned 18. I was a cocky 18-year-old. Um, I didn't particularly want to be there uh, at the start in, in many ways. I, I was actually having a great time in Warwick, and I thought I was, uh, I was getting better. I, I wasn't sure that I was ready for city radio. Part, part of me didn't think I was ready for city radio. The, the bravado part of me definitely thought I was better than half the blokes on the air. I remember my first daytime shift. I did mid-dawn for a little while, not for long. And my first daytime shift, I filled in on afternoons for Graham Roberts, Robbo. Um, and Gray Clark was on before me. And I walked in and I was literally shaking. And Gray said, mate, you'll be fine. You're born to do this. This is your radio station. You know, have fun. By the time I got up there at four o'clock, I was the only announcer with a job in the building. They fired the entire um, on air staff while I was on air. Part of the reason I was on air was so as they could fire everybody else. Um, Gray got sacked. I think Robbo got sacked. Uh, everybody got sacked. Literally, I got called in after my shift and said, tomorrow morning, Billy J. Smith starts on breakfast. You'll be doing this, 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 and this. And that was, I didn't get to do the rest of the week that I was supposed to do filling in on afternoon. So it was, um, it was daunting to walk in and realise I was walking into a radio station that was so big uh, but then it was kind of, geez, this is what real radio is about. They sack people and, and these things happen and you have to change automatically. I was supposed to do it. I think I was supposed to do a disco that night somewhere and I had to cancel that because I had to be up the next morning to do um, breakfast with Billy. And it was just, yeah, it was mad. But uh, it was uh, the, the next seven years, I think I was there after that, uh, was terrific. It was, was great fun. It was really, really good fun radio. Okay, Kevin, two questions for you here. Were you ever involved in a 4IP Christmas album? And were you on board when Alan McGurvin enticed 400 people to take the day off work and fly around with him in a 747? Uh, yes and yes. Uh, I was in um, the Christmas album one. I did one of the songs that we did. McGurvin did one side of it, and I think Paul my Paul J might have, the late, late great Paul J Turner might have done the other side. We're called the 1010 Men. And we did, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the song. I, I only put it in a box the other day, to be honest, because uh, I found it uh, somewhere. So, yeah, I was involved in the Christmas thing, but Jeff Mullins was basically the, the sort of pseudo-disc jockey singer of, the, of the, the group. He was the program director there when, when I was doing Bricky and stuff. Um, so, yes, I did do that, and that was fun. And I learned that I couldn't sing because we all had a crack at doing uh, the lead vocal on uh, Please Come Home for Christmas or whatever it was. Um, and I went and did it and I could see the faces in the control room were like, oh, God, he's, he's really he's really terrible. Um, so, so, and I went back and listened to it and that was the last time I ever, uh, not the last time, but that was, that killed my, any, any singing aspirations I had were, were killed on that spot. Um, 
The McGurnard thing, yeah, really interesting because I did Kevin Hillier's OS Siki, I think before Alan did the, the big one where we did the plane flight, uh, where he took him over the, um, up in the plane and took him off. We did one, we did, uh, my OS Siki was uh, to Tangalooma Island and we took a, 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 a boatload of, a busload and boatload of people over to Tangalooma Island. So yeah, I was there for that. It was good fun. McGurnard's, McGurnard's a great broadcaster, a really good broadcaster. Um, he, he he did some very memorable things in his time. I was on air doing breakfast and Alan used to, I think Alan was on air from eight or 8.30, he might've been. I was on air doing breakfast. McGurvin's in the next studio recording his gotcha calls and we had the old roller machines. And uh, all I hear is this commotion and banging of doors because the studios were up against each other and there was very tiny airlock between the two. Might as well have not had it for soundproof purposes, to be honest. And all I hear is this noise and this, and then bang, shatter, shatter, shatter. McGurvin had taken, picked up the roller machine and had literally walked to the top of the stairs, which went into the car park downstairs and thrown the roller down the, um, down the stairs. He's, and, and he was screaming to Van Richard Smith, who was our technician, I warned you, I warned you that if this did this one more time, I was going to chuck it. So he threw it. As, as the roller's gone down the, uh, the flight of stairs, hit the bottom of the, of the stairwell, bounced up, the car park door is opened by the then manager, Ken Mulcahy, who almost wore it. Um, so Al, Al was a, uh, a colourful human being to work with. He's good fun, though. He's mad as a cut snake. So what sort of audience share figures were enjoyed by the station at that time? And any idea of your personal ratings as well? Uh, oh, look, I can't remember exactly, but we were, we were, I think, only beaten when FM started uh, in 1980, whatever it was, 80, 81, uh, when they came in and, and the FM thing went, whoosh, and they were sort of pulling, we're pulling 30, 30 some, 40 some percent at nights and... Um, I know when I finished there, we were pulling 5%. Uh, the radio station had been decimated by FM and uh, just just wasn't competing at all. But in its heyday, in that mid part of the 70s, um, yeah, 40, 50% of the market, I think, uh, 4OP had. It was just unbelievable. Um, and, it was, and, the, and that's not to say that the opposition radio stations weren't terrific because 4BC and 4BK had absolutely stellar lineups. You know, David Kidd, Gavin Wood, Ray McGregor went over there after he finished with, at IP. Um, Graham Smith. Uh, gee, the, the, the lineup of talent on the other radio stations was unbelievable. It was a really good time for Brisbane Radio. So your profile in a major capital city market is peaking and things seem to be going really well up north. But in 1982, there were bigger fish to fry down south and you landed the job, of course, at 3XY. <laughs> Greg Smith was on holidays in, in on the Gold Coast and heard me um, on 4IP. And then I got flown down. Uh, I started on the Australia Day weekend when Mushroom had the big Evolution concert at, um, at the My Music Bowl to celebrate their 10-year anniversary. So the first thing I ever did for 3XY was walk out on stage and introduce the runners, or I can't even remember who it was I introduced. I was so bloody nervous. I got off a plane and Greg Smith's telling me, well, we're going to we're going to have a look at the station, have a look at the studio, you can play with the console for half an hour, and then we're going to the, the bowl. I said, what are we going to the bowl for? He said, you're going to go on stage and introduce a band. So did all that. So, yeah, it was good. It was uh, it was the right move for me to make. I'd, I'd spent um, nearly three years on breakfast at 4OP, and that wasn't, it wasn't working. The share coins and with the friend thing, we tried really hard, but we just couldn't get them. Wayne Poo owned Brisbane at that time, Wayne Roberts, and rightly so, because he was doing great radio. Um, so we, we couldn't get a look in. We were still seen as a teenage radio station, um, as a pop station, I guess. So it was very hard to get anything going. McGurvin was doing great radio, but even he wasn't rating that well, to be honest. So I thought it was an opportune time for me to, to go back into, into doing what I, I thought I did best, and that was doing music radio. So I went down and, um, and XY had been looking for a replacement for Greg, for Greg Evans for a, a fair while. He'd left in the November of the year before. 
to do television. So they were looking for someone and Greg heard me on the Gold Coast and uh, offered me the job. I came down, had a look and went, yeah, well, this is a no brainer. So that was a really good, I, I spent a year on drive and then, then went on to mornings, but it was, uh, it was good. It was really good. I think, I think that, um, that was at the stage where XY was starting to be hit by the FMers. I think we still were number one in 82. I know I was number one in drive in 82. Um, Mark Day beat me early in the middle of the year and then I think I got it back at the end of the year, but that was about the last number one survey that 3XY ever had was at the end of 82. Then, then the, uh, the FM has just eroded the, uh, the audience away, as you would expect. Now, like 4IP, XY had been the dominant station in the 70s in Melbourne and moving into the 80s had to compete with the emerging FM stations. Now, was there still an air of superiority about the station when you arrived or was the focus on countering the FM opposition? Uh, I'd never say superiority. I think we were just, we knew we were in a battle. Greg Smith was PD for that first year I was there. Um, and he, he knew he had a battle on, he knew he had to find things to combat. He had to be smarter than the FM stations because he couldn't compete with them from a sound point of view. So that was when Greg went to America, um, and came back with the music research system that everyone uses now. Um, I don't like it. None of us liked it when it came back in. We went from picking our own music to being given a piece of paper with it all on. And it was all, you know, we'll play Stairway to Heaven 3.7 times per week because that's what the audience research says we should do. Um, auditorium researching came in with all that. Greg brought back, you know, great research tools, which everyone now uses, but um, he, he knew that we had to be, the AM stations had to be ahead of the, ahead of the curve. Um, and he was very good in that in that area, and that's that's how we managed to be competitive. Let alone, you know, we couldn't win anymore, but we were certainly competitive, and we certainly kept the the FM stations down for a long time. Um, uh, XY wasn't it wasn't a it was a enjoyable radio station. I never called the cocky radio station when I was there. I I know four IP was. Um, we thought we owned the town. I'm sure 3XY thought they owned the town in that mid part of the 70s. But come the early part of the 80s, I think everyone on air knew that FM was where it was going to finish up being and that AM, as a music entity, was always going to struggle. Now, besides the FM stations, 3KZ were also making an impression in the marketplace at that time. So the competition there was pretty hot. Oh, no, it was terrific. Someone put up on social media the other day a uh, 1982 or 83 lineup of all the stations and the names on the other radio stations. You know, you had had Pete Meehan doing breakfast on, on KZ and Peter O'Callaghan was doing mornings and Cell Jones was, was number one in mornings. Uh, I think Pete, Peter O'Callaghan might have been doing afternoons. Um, 3MP had a terrific lineup of talent. Um, uh, the, the talent on air, 3DB, would, were sort of. Uh, back to music uh, in that early part of the 80s. Even UZ at one stage were number one with Don Lane and Bert Newton doing breakfast in the morning. So you had, you had talent dripping everywhere all over the, all over the radio dial. So there's no shortage of um, what are now considered to be great names of radio on air in that, in that mid part of the 80s in, in Melbourne. <laughs> You're listening to Pilots of the Airwaves. My special guest today is Kevin Hillier. And Kevin, in 1986, the FM lure became a little bit too much and the Fox Morning crew was created with you at the helm. Now, did it take much convincing to get you to make the move from AM to FM? Uh, not at the time. Uh, Greg Smith uh, was then PD at, uh, at SAFM. In, in, he'd left at 3XY after I'd been there for about a year. So he left about the early part of 83, I guess, and Gary Soprane took over. Gary was terrific to work for. We'd been great mates, uh, done pumps together and done all that stuff together. Uh, I was doing mornings, uh, really enjoying it. There was no no question about whether I was enjoying being on air there. It was a terrific show to do, uh, 9 to 12. Um, but the opportunity and the challenge of going to an FM station that hadn't really performed that well, at that stage Fox hadn't, hadn't been a great rating station. Uh, Graham Smith was the manager. Um, the SAFM team had just taken over the radio station. They just bought Fox, so they wanted to make a whole stack of changes. Greg sold that to me and said, you know, it's a long drive from Hoppers Crossing to Nunawadding, but you'll be missing the traffic um, because it'll be 4 o'clock in the morning when you'll be doing it. Um, so that 50K journey won't seem quite as bad, and this is this is what I want to build. I want to build a, a breakfast show around you and get some great people in and... Um, reminiscent of kind of what we'd done in Brisbane when I did the 
the Kevin Hillier and Friends Breakfast Show in, in Brisbane, where we had you know Billy J Smith and Paul Bongiorno and all those people. I wanted to build a team of people. So he said, that's what's on offer. Do you want to do it? And I went, yeah, absolutely. I had a bit of a legal hassle um, with XY at the time and Stan Guilfoyle, the manager, getting out of my um, my deal with them. But um, we sort of extricated ourselves from that and avoided going to court, only just, um, and got on air uh, in September of 86. And uh, that was that was fun too. Tell us a little bit about that morning crew and those who started with you and those who evolved as the time went on. Yeah, the original morning crew was um, was me, and then I had Wally doing Wally Weissel doing sport. Um, Gary McQuaid was reading news at the start. Trish Mitchell was uh, doing the kind of uh, the female part of that news presentation. Rob Jill, I don't think it started at that stage. I'm not sure if Rob was in the mix at the very very start. Um, then we sort of set about working out the, uh, who worked and who didn't work. So Dennis O'Kane came in and, and started reading news. He was news director there. Um, DD came in and placed a Trish because Trish went more into the end of working with Barry and his show after nine. The Barry and Trish thing became very much a an on air thing then. Um, Wally was with me for a good year and a bit before Grubby came over. We got Grubby over from from XY from the XY Zoo. Uh, we searched around desperately trying to find a comedy writer to do some bits and pieces for us because we knew that was an area that we needed to uh, be pretty strong in to to match up against the. Uh, Triple M and the D generation. So we got uh, originally Ian McFadgen came in and did uh, wrote all comedy stuff and David Rabbitborough. At the same time, Ian, after he started with us, then got the job to do the comedy company on Channel 10. So it was the same building at Nunna Wadding. Uh, so he was sort of, he'd been in doing uh, David Rabbitborough with us one minute and then going in and doing, you know, Kylie Mole with his, with his wife uh, in, the, in the studio, Channel 10, the next. So that, that, was, that was terrific uh, acquisition. Uh, to get Ian on board. Um, and yeah, so we had Rob Jell in doing that. So yeah, it was pre- pretty good team. And then Grubby came in about a year into it, about 88, I reckon, or thereabouts, Grubby would have came come in, maybe the end of 87. Um, and that was probably the only other change we made was when um, Mick Malloy, Jason Stevens, and Andrew May came in and started doing some comedy stuff for him. Bissell had seen him at a uni review and said, you got to check these blokes out. I think they're really talented. They might, they might be able to do some stuff for you. And we knew Ian, Ian was getting torn more away to do the television and couldn't spend as much time doing our stuff. He just wanted to do the David Rabbitborough stuff. And uh, so we put Mick and, and Jay on and they became the, uh, the comedy writing team doing bits and pieces for us when, when Mick arrived, when he'd get himself out of bed and get there on time. Um, he had some issues with that, <laughs> which we sorted out. Um, and we, we lucked on a, a little thing called How Green Was My Cactus. Greg Smith sent me a, a he said, I've left a, a, the cassette for you to have a listen to on the weekend. Um, tell me what you think. We're going to run it at SAFM in, in Adelaide on the morning zoo over there with Vinny, uh, John Vincent. And uh, he said, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to run it. Let me know what you think. And, and think. I listened to it in the car going home and I was crying with laughter. It was the funniest thing I'd ever heard was brilliant. Keith Scott and uh, the people that put that together were just, you know, fantastic. And I got home and rang Greg straight away and said, has anyone else got this? He said, yeah, AW's got it. They were offered it first. And I said, oh, mate, we've got to have it. It's it's just gold. It's absolutely fantastic. And it was. It was that stop, sit in your car, I can't get out of the car, listen to radio. It was just brilliant. You know, Keith Scott and Ross Higgins and... Um, all the people who did the voices were just absolute, Kevin Goldsby, absolutely amazing voice talent. And the writing was spectacular. And their impersonations of Joe and John Howard and Keating and Hawke and all them were just, you know, absolutely sensational. So um, we lucked on that. And that was, that was sort of part of the ticket that got the morning crew to number one, to be honest. Here's Cactus. Hi, Cruddy. Not now, Julia. I'm buffing up my squeaky clean image. Pass the brass over. Cruddy, what are you doing tomorrow night? Saturday night? Same as always. I'll get my church clothes ready and watch reruns of Lassie with my family. Oh, so you uh, don't want to go to the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras then? The what? The Mardi Gras parade, Cruddy. I've been working all week on the Labor Party Dream Team float. No, I'm staying home. I'm the Bradman of family values. There's votes in it. Start the car, Julia, while I kiss the wife goodbye. Okay, Kevin, can you tell me what these songs have in common? William Shakespeare's My Little Angel, Marty Rowan, Mean Pair of Jeans, Robin Jolly's Marshall's Portable Music Machine, Johnny Young, Step Back, and Pussyfoot, The Way That You Do It. 
Well, either one or two things. They would have all been on the Jukebox from Hell album that I put together, <laughs> or they would have been part of the D-Generation's uh, DAG quiz. Uh, uh, they probably would have been part of both. The Jukebox from Hell. So did you ever offend any local artists with some of the nominations? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Ernie Sigler got most upset with me. Uh, I went in to do a spot on Ernie's TV show with Denise, and, uh, hey, what do you think you're doing? Hey, hey, what the bloody jet? That was number one, that song, you know? Everyone loves that song. So, well, you know, and you, we're, we're taking the piss here. <laughs> and, and he knew, he, he got the joke. Farnham phoned me up when we put Sadie in, um, uh, partly thanking me because it wasn't going to be played on commercial radio again. Uh, yeah, they, they've got some good reaction uh, to it from, from, from people around the traps. It was a bit of fun. And we, we had a big night, I think, at a, a pub in King Street, the Karen Tavern in King Street, which doesn't exist anymore. It might be Witches and Britches now. So we had a big night there where we actually launched it and did all that stuff. And I think EMI sold oh, three, four copies maybe. So it was. So it's in the shed somewhere, I think, at the moment. It's a good little thing. Got a great, we did a great jacket. I'll tell you what we did do. We did, Fox used to do some, bloody brilliant merchandising uh, and the Jetbox from Hell jacket I reckon was the most sought after jacket going around outside the uh, the leather triple M top gun jacket I reckon they were the two hot uh, hot radio jacket items. Now you mentioned John Farnham there before, can you tell us your connection between John and the Whispering Jack album? Um, we, we When we were doing a, a show at XY called Off the Record um, which was basically uh, come in uh, play some new records. It was Wilbur Wild, uh, Graham Simpson as Lester Parsons, the character that he had on the air at that time, because Graham was a, a very well-respected uh, music journalist. Uh, but as Lester Parsons, he was a uh, a bitch-slapping um, gossip monger who, who was brilliant on air and had, uh, you know, Joan Rivers-type uh, one-liners to uh, absolutely massacre people. So he worked under an assumed name so as people didn't, A, hate him and B, sue him. Um, so we did the show called Off the Record, and uh, basically we'd get a guest in each week. We played new music, and you would—it was like the discussion thing that Hey Hey had said they had—and you judge the records. So we did that, um, and we got Farnham in for that a couple of times. Um, my ex-wife was the producer of that show, and she was very big Farnham fan. So um, we got John in a couple of times. I wasn't a great John Farnham fan, to be perfectly honest. And then I met him, um, and we hit it off. We we got to be pretty good mates, and so. When he was doing the, the the Whispering Jack stuff, he'd bring it in and play it to us. We heard uh, Touch of Paradise and uh, we didn't hear You're the Voice. That was the one that he didn't play. So we played a couple of the other songs on the album and just went, wow, it's really, really good. And then I left um, uh, and I, we used to drive him home from gigs and all that sort of stuff because he didn't drive in those days uh, up to his house and that. So I got, got to know him reasonably well. And then when uh, I went to Fox, the album came out. And no one wanted to play it. Everyone, not not because it wasn't good, but because it was John. Um, and there was that, you know, stupid radio phobia about, oh, you don't play these people. You don't play, X, Y wouldn't play Madonna. And when they did play Madonna, they wouldn't announce it. Because, you know, oh, we didn't want, we're too cool to play Madonna. Well, everyone's buying the bloody thing, play it. Um, so uh, finally, Keith Fowler, who was the music director at Fox at the time, said, this is just a great song. We've got to play it. So we played it. And, and uh, I'd been to the Grain Store Tavern to see the tryout nights for the songs when he was trying them out live. And so, um, yeah, and, and Wheatley, obviously, I'd known from the Little River Band days when he was managing them. And I, um, in, my, in my IP days when um, uh, the Little River Band were making it in America, I spent a lot of time on the phone to them and uh, followed their career very closely on air. Um, uh, during that 70s. So I knew both of them reasonably well. So, yeah, it was a, it was a good fit and it, it was wrapped at the success they had. And then we did, uh, I think, two or three versions of, uh, of Rock Sat with John, one, one with uh, Chain Reaction album and a few others. So, yeah, we got to be, be pretty reasonable mates over the years. Good fella. Obviously, kicking goals with the morning crew, you had one ear on what was happening up at Triple M, who had launched the D-Generation. Now, by 1990, you surprised many by jumping FM ships and joining the D-Gen. How did that move come about? A uh, bloke called Ian Grace, uh, who was the group program manager of uh, Triple M in Sydney, or Triple M, um, hounded me. He wanted me, he wanted me to come over. 
I found out later part of the reason was the DGIM were, were doing television pilots. They were trying to get into TV and stuff and uh, they um, they wanted someone to come and take a fair bit of the kind of the load off them in terms of uh, what presenting the breakfast show was all about. So I fitted that mould. Um, I was very happy at at Fox. So there was you know there was nothing there. The, the money was the money offer was terrific. There's no doubt about that. Um, I was worried about the Rocksat component because we had Rocksat on Fox, uh, but Triple M had agreed to take that. So I was going to be able to continue to do that and the opportunity just to go okay go and work with arguably the the best comedy team in the in the country and see how that worked and um see where that took me um was uh, was a, a great lure that and the money let's not lie about that um so i went um and we were number one in breakfast at um at fox at the time i paul thompson had said to me just before the the last survey came out in 1989 you'll probably get beaten and the D generation will probably beat you. Our tracking and all those, you know, silly things they do, tell us that you'll, you'll, we think you'll get done. And we came out and we beat them, not by much, but we beat them in that last survey of um, of '89. And uh, unbeknown to everybody, that's when Gracie really started to to put the the wood on me to to leave. And it was the right time for me to do it for me personally. So it kind of ticked all those boxes. So I went over to Triple M and uh, spent the next seven years there, two and a two and a half and nearly three years with the D Gen, and then. Um, four or five years on mornings. At that time, you were working with some of Australia's best emerging comedy talent who went on to become giants in the industry, both collectively and individually. What, what made them work? What made them so special? Hard work, really simple. Talent, yes, tick. Um, but hard work, I've never seen a team of people work so hard on their, on their comedic craft. Um, and and they, they did have, I mean, Mick Beloy had been working for me, had come in to me in about October of... 89 and said, I'm, I'm going to Triple M, I'm going to go and work with the Ds. I said, okay, that, you know, I understand that. That makes perfect sense to me from your point of view. And they were doing, starting to do some pilots then for the TV stuff. Um, so they, they, Tony, I've never seen anyone work harder than Tony Martin. And you'd go in and they, he'd pull me out during a record and take me in next door and we'd rehearse um, the bit that he was about to do. So was, everything was perfectly right. He was, his attention to detail was unbelievable. Um, Tommy G, Rob, Santo, they all worked really hard. They just worked and worked and worked. Uh, um, they made the magic happen um, by, by working really hard at it. There was no, you know, there's no kind of secret to it, to be honest. And they've continued to do that to this day. They just really work hard at what they do. They take great pride in it. They have an amazing ability to walk out of a situation while they're still hot and people still want them, um, which they did with the, with the breakfast show. Uh, we were at the we were number one by a mile when uh, when they left uh, to go and do television full time, and that, that's the way they operate. Now yours, of course, is a broadcast music background. Theirs was comedy. How was the chemistry between you? Pretty good, actually. Yeah, pretty good. Um, I knew I knew what I was there to do. I was there to kind of drive the ship and and to make sure that uh, everything worked smoothly and that all those little things, you know, sponsor credits and all those things that they, they didn't want to do, didn't like doing, weren't, weren't good at doing, sounded clumsy doing. That's the stuff that I did because, I mean, I was the anchor, basically. So I just steered it. And then um, we actually worked, worked together really well. Um, I wrote a few bits and pieces here and there along the way and they let me do that, which was really nice. A dad quiz here and a you know, profile bit here or whatever. Um, but in terms of... Um, my skills uh, when we had, you know, Bob Hawke or whoever in to, to do an interview and stuff was uh, just my normal radio broadcasting skills. So um, I thought I thought we worked in really well, and it took us a year, but we got that that um, that shift to number one as well. So that uh, that finished up doing really well. Fox beat us in that that first uh, 1990. Fox was still number one um, with the with the lineup of uh, Mike Perso and Grubby and Dede doing the morning crew. Um, and we went, I think, triple M number two. Um, so, yeah, it took us a year, but we got there. Um, yeah, the, the chemistry between us was really good. Now, just moving down the dial slightly, at what part of the evolution of Gold FM did you arrive at 104.3? <laughs> uh, gee whiz. Mark Johnson, um, I left triple M and then was kind of in limbo um, because I got, offered, I got asked whether I wanted to be... Uh, the executive producer of, of football and be involved in Triple M football or if I wanted to do the morning show. 
and I chose the morning show. Well, I chose the wrong one, apparently. So um, I was, uh, I left um, and I freelanced for six months. And then in, while that was all going on, I was basically doing a lot of work down at K-Rock in Geelong for Steve Woods. I, uh, Mark Johnson contacted me and said, um, the, the bricky shift is going to be available at, at Gold. Do you, are you interested? I said, yeah, absolutely. So we put the team together for that and uh, went there. Um, not at the top of Gold's game or nowhere near where they are now in terms of rating success, but we're trying to kind of, I guess, get Gold back to where it probably, sh- where it is now and where it probably should have been then. So it wasn't at the, certainly not the height of their powers in the, the Pete Me and Liz Sullivan days of, uh, you know, number one breakfast shows. But um, we weren't down the bottom, but we certainly weren't up the top. Now, Kevin, like so many of our previous guests, you were part of a star-studded revolving door roster at 3AK, where the lineup of personalities looked first rate, but the pieces in the jigsaw just didn't seem to fit. Now, you worked with Kath Bedford in Breakfast. Was, was there ever any hope for that station, or was there just too much off-air action for it to succeed? It's really funny because, I mean, now you've got stations that rate 2%, and that's considered to be okay. Um, not okay, but it's, you know, it's accepted. No, probably not. There was not the resources. John Yost, who who got me there, um, well, I I got me there and John employed me um, because I sent him a letter and said, uh, this is what I think you need for your breakfast show and I'm it. Um, So, and he he, uh, took me to lunch and said, yeah, righto, you are it. Go on, in you go. (laughs) Uh, And uh, work with Kathy. Uh, I think John Blackman and Bernie Finn might have been the breakfast combination before um, Kathy and I jumped in and then they got Darren across the course, which, you know, I think, I think with time and with patience and, uh, so a lot of resources, um, not sharing one Herald son amongst the entire staff, um, might've been, you know, part of the problem. <laughs> uh, but yeah, look, I, I don't, probably the short answer to your question is no, there probably wasn't ever a, um, a chance for it to be, uh, workable, but, it wasn't bad radio. I don't think it was ever bad radio. And I was there when when nine um, eleven uh, happened. And and Darren, watching Darren work then was just absolutely spectacular to watch a man at, at the height of his powers in that particular moment. That sort of five or six day period um, was quite quite stunning. Okay, you've worked solo, you've worked with partners, and you've worked with teams. Which do you prefer, and why? Uh, I like them all, to be honest. Um, I, I enjoy the, the multi-voice, um, you know, because I did that in Brisbane and then came to came to Melbourne and did it in Melbourne. That was that was I, I really do enjoy that. I like bouncing off people. Um, I, as a music presenter, loved being on my own. Um, thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, now, as a music, I, I don't I don't have any great aspirations to be a music presenter anymore um, because of the, the the logistics of it now, kind of. We've taken all the, the bit of the thrill of it away, to be honest, the physical thrill of it away. Um, I, I prefer now probably to have someone to bounce off, but it doesn't really bother me. I'm a, I'm a broadcaster and you, whatever, whatever's thrown on the table, you, you work with whatever it is. If it's you on your own, it's you on your own. If it's you and someone else, um, you make that work or it doesn't work. Let's just rewind slightly to 4IP, a station that was obviously really very close to your heart. What does it mean when such an important call sign like 4IP and others that you've worked with simply vanish from the dial? Oh, well, XY's gone and IP's gone. And, uh, yeah, it, uh, IP's now basically for tab. Um, yeah, it's sad, but it's uh, that's just the, the changing of the times. I'm sure uh, the 3DB people feel the same about that in Melbourne, 3KZ, which doesn't exist anymore. It's now gold. All those things that have happened, that's just the evolution of the way it goes. 4IP still exists in, in my my memories, in my mind, when Paul J passed away towards the end of last year. Uh, that, that brought back all those memories. So, you know, that that uh, that branding of IP, 4IP and 2SM and 3XY, that is that is absolutely branded in people's heads. You 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 can't kill that off just not by by not being on the air, you haven't killed that off. Now, of course, Kevin, your other great love is sport and your passion is for the Western Bulldogs and the AFL. So how does a boy that spent most of his formative years in Brizzy develop such a close and enthusiastic affiliation that is generally associated with those who are born and bred into a club, especially one as tight as the Western Bulldogs? 
Well, I was born in uh, in Laverton. I was born at the Western General Hospital, which is literally a Ted Whitten kick away from the from the oval that uh, he ran around and played on. So, I'm a Melbourne boy. Uh, Dad was in the Air Force. That's why we went to Queensland because he got posted to Ambly in uh, in Brisbane. So that was when I was seven. Uh, so I grew up in the backyard of my Olm Street Laverton home, kicking a footy around with the number three on our, our bin that got put out every every week. Uh, Ted's number. Uh, with red, white and blue painted on it. And I'd run around the backyard and pretend to be Ted Whitten and John Schultz. Um, uh, and, you know, that, that was what I grew up doing. Then I went to Queensland where there was no Aussie rules to be played at that stage for juniors. It just didn't exist. My dad uh, finished up coaching my younger brother um, when he sort of was 12 or 13 playing the game. But uh, when I was up there, you didn't have that as an option. Certainly wasn't in schools. So I went to school and played rugby league uh, and played cricket. So... Um, then came back in 82 and a um, couple of the boys, um, I was doing the rock and roll column for the uh, the footy record, which is part of what 3XY did, a one-page thing that they did each week. Um, and uh, I, I sent a letter out to all the clubs because I was trying to get a hold of players to do different things. I said, you know, if you want want to plug for anything that's going on in the club, just give me a ring and let me know and we'll do it on the radio. And the Bulldogs boys came in and said, uh, you know, this is, I said, well, I'm, I'm a Bulldog boy. And they said, oh, come to the club. So... In 1984, I started doing events for him. I think the first one I did might have been the auction. And uh, I've been doing them ever since. Um, and I was lucky enough, oh, what is it now, about five or six years ago now, I was supposed to get life membership of the club, which is something I'm really proud of. But uh, it's a good association. But, yeah, it, it is born out of exactly what you say, out of being born and bred in the western suburbs and kicking a footy around in the backyard. Now, Kevin, one of the joys of being in the business that you are in is that you're also asked to MC events, which is great because it means you get to enjoy real-time feedback from, from audiences. Now, that's all fine until you might have a Sarah Murdoch moment in front of a live audience. Uh, Kevin, has that ever happened to you? Uh, at the Bulldogs. We, yes. um, the 1985 Best and Fairest. Um, well, it, was a, it was a high-tech affair. We were doing the votes, and as we were counting them, they had a, a uh, butcher's paper on a whiteboard, and we were adding them up. So at the end of, uh, at the, end of the count, I announced that um, Doug Hawkins was the uh, Western Bulldogs Best and Fairest winner for 1985. Congratulations to Doug. Uh, well done. Doug had been, I think, uh, got engaged the week before, so we'd done all that earlier in the night. So Doug stands up. And as that's happening, Sean O'Sullivan, who just got given an AFL life membership the other day, is tugging on my little coat thing here going, Kev, Kev, what? Uh, mate, just uh, just get Hawk to sit down and hang on a minute. I think we've stuffed the votes up. Oh, right. Okay. Um, Hawk, just uh, jump back in your seat. We'll, we'll get to you in a uh, Then they realised that they'd added it up wrongly and Andrew Purser had, in fact, won the best and fairest. So... I then had to, Doug was runner up, I then had to uh, stand on stage and go, uh, actually, we've made a mistake. Uh, it's Andrew Purser. Congratulations, uh, Polly, which was his nickname. Uh, come on up and accept the uh, the East Coast medal. They were the major sponsor at the time. Uh, and Doug, um, uh, you're the runner up, at which time <laughs> Doug got up from the table, <laughs> kicked the chair, walked across the social club and uh, stormed out for all of about 35 seconds till he came back at the bar and someone gave him another beer. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was one of those moments where you went, oh, Jesus, really? Ooh, it was here, it's cold outside, but warm in here Till the weather's clear, you can stay in here Ooh, got to be for I be OK, Kevin, now time for a dozen or so quick-fire jock questions. First one being, where were you when you heard John Lennon died? Uh, I was on holidays in Noosa. Um, uh, I was on Brecky at the time, and uh, I, I was the cricket was on, and I fell asleep watching the cricket. Woke up, and one of those little ticket things was going along the bottom of the screen. It said John Lennon has been shot in New York, and I went, oh, "Surely this is bullshit." Uh, and looked again, and then uh, yeah, so I was on holidays in Noosa, so it was very sad. And uh, and still, what forty years later, you're still scratching your head, wondering how that happened. What was the last concert ticket that you actually paid for? Um, what, people pay for concert tickets? No. Uh, uh, I reckon the last one I paid for was I bought two tickets to Michael Bublé for uh, my lovely wife Sarah and her mum to go and watch him in concert. Is there a concert act that you regret never actually seeing? Oh, okay. Uh, the immediate answer would be the Beatles because I didn't see the Beatles, but 
to be honest, to go and see the Beatles live would have been a complete and utter waste of time because you couldn't hear anything. So probably what I've seen is better than actually probably going there, even though the thrill of actually seeing them live on stage as a Beatles nut would have been, uh, would have been good. But I'll surprise you here. A, a, a group I wish I'd seen live, there's two. The Mamas and the Papas and the Carpenters. Because just the pure, uh, talk about pure voices, I'm in love with Mama Cass's voice. And I think Karen Carpenter has the, uh, the kind of voice that just, that just melts your heart. How about the word you had most trouble pronouncing on air? Goran Ivanisevich. I was doing Brecky at uh, Brecky Sport at Triple M and Steve Speziali was reading and he threw to me for sport and I reckon I had eight whacks at it and I couldn't get it and it just to this day haunts me. Because it was a final, it might have been a Wimbledon final or something like that and, uh, oh God, Jesus, did it haunt me. Okay, this is one we love to ask all our guests, Kevin. Was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those Don't Come Monday orders? How long you got? <laughs> there was one that nearly did me in, and that was in Brisbane. It was the Russell time of the Russell Island uh, uh, Royal Commission into uh, the shonky dealings that were going on there. Um, the one thing that uh, you don't have any insurance for is subjudice, and it was a Royal Commission, so it was costing X thousand dollars per day. It had been going for, I think, two years. I did a joke about uh, a, a land development thing in Miami was on at the same time where they were selling blocks of land that um, if you came back at lunchtime, you had a swimming pool in the middle of the lounge room because of the high tide. I did a joke about that in Russell Island and the bloke who was running the Royal Commission was in his hotel room and he heard it. And we had to, through the, only through the very, very sharp thinking of the news director who did exactly what he was told not to do ever, he sent a tape straight up to the, um, the magistrate um, or the judge or whatever he was, um, the QC, and uh, said, this is, you can tell it's a joke. He was only mucking around. He wasn't serious. It wasn't an editorial comment about any of it. Um, he, the QC heard it and went, uh, they gave me a warning, I got a letter, all that sort of stuff, but I thought I was gone and I thought I was going to be spending not only probably time in jail, but um, the legal bill would have been all mine because there was no insurance for subjudice and it was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars that I would have had to pay back. So I thought I was going to, I thought Frank Moore, so Frank was going to tell me, it's not Longreach, kid. It's the door over there. Don't let it hit you on the ass as you leave. Okay, Skyhooks or Sherbert? Both. Like them both. Um, both diff, t- for totally different reasons. Uh, uh, IP played them both. Um, uh, and then later when I came to Melbourne, obviously, in the 80s, I got to know Shell really well because Shell obviously worked on 3XY with uh, Mark Irvine. Uh, and I got to know Shell well because Shell was Shell and Shell loved the media and loved being on air. Did some great shows with me in Brisbane. Um, and But Daryl and, uh, and the Sherbert boys were always terrific fun too. So, no, I'll take them both. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Beatles, every day of the week, seven days a week, eight days a week. It's the Beatles. I love them. Here's one for you, Kevin. Doug Hawkins or E.J. Witten? Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, oh, bloody hell. Uh, goodness me, uh, B. Hawk. I, I, I saw Ted in the early days, didn't see much of it after we went to Brisbane because you didn't get hardly any football up there at all. But um, I saw Doug do some... The 1985 um, final series was Doug Hawkins uh, at his absolute best uh, I've never seen anyone play quite as quite a starring role as an individual as he did in, in that series of games. He was spectacular. So, yeah, be Hawk. Kevin, the most treasured piece of memorabilia you have from those heady IP XY days? Ooh, I guess um, a letter from Don Bradman that I got and a letter from Bert Newton. Um, I, I asked them both to be on my program. Both knocked me back. Um uh, and Bert was responding to a, a, a quote I'd done in the um, in Keith Lofthouse's column about radio in Melbourne at that, that particular time, so he wrote me a letter. But Bradman's letter back to me, knocking me back when uh, remember Gary Sweet did that um, TV series about Bradman. I had Gary in, and then I thought the 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 coup here is to get uh, is to get Don. So I tried to get Bradman, but he sent me a letter back, which I thought was, you know, this great treasured piece of memorabilia until I found out that Don wrote letters to everyone who wrote him a letter. He wrote back to him. So it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a one-off or anything, but it's, it, to me, it was, you know, to get a, 
as a cricket nut and, and someone who played a bit of cricket during the years, to get a letter from Don Bradman was pretty bloody special. And the other one would be the, the gold record I got for um, for the work we did with the 12th man with Billy when that, that first came out. So that, that, that in terms of a piece of memorabilia that, that actually does hang in my house, the gold record does. Biggest news story that broke while you were on air? Uh, well, I mentioned working at AK with Darren when uh, when it all happened in America. That was that was massive. And then just recent times, um, what, 2017, uh, the Burke Street um, incident uh, where those six people tragically died when that bloke uh, was behind the wheel of that car. I was on air at SEN and that was sort of as raw as it gets. It was literally down the street. It wasn't overseas. It wasn't on a television screen. It was literally down the street. Uh, from where SEM was in Richmond, and and that uh, that really hit me, and we had we had no resources or anything, but we managed to cover it. Um, the producer had a had a uh, friend who was actually at the scene, and um, yeah, so and then I later found out a couple of people I knew were you know had been injured in it. Um, so yeah, that was that was one that hit home. Did you ever have a moment when someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck? Um. No, I don't think that's happened, to be honest. I was starstruck once. Uh, it wasn't in the studio. It was in a, a hotel room in Perth when Dennis Lilly walked in. Um, the, Keith Fowler had organised for him to come up and do an interview. We were over there to do the Bowie tour uh, when I was 3XY. Um, and uh, he was in the foyer and Keith said, come up to the room and Kev will do an interview with you. And Dennis being Dennis went, yeah, right, oh, no worries. He was there to pick up tickets for David Bowie or whatever. So he came in and then you know, knock on the door, open the door. Dennis, Dennis Lilly, um, who was my sort of boyhood cricket idol. Um, uh, so, yeah, that, that's probably the, the time I came closest to being starstruck. Never, uh, the, the wonderful thing about half these people is it's, it's the people around them who pump them up and, and make them out to be something else. They're 99.9% of them are just really normal people. Best words of advice from a program manager? Gary Roberts at 4IP, um, we all had a kind of American twinge about, our, our, you know, the way we talked and stuff. And Gary just said to me, just be yourself. Just said, you're a good broadcaster. You, you, you've got skills and stuff. Just just go on air and be yourself and let's see what happens. And that worked. And that's when that's when it kind of all changed a bit for me. And I went from being a rocky jockey to actually being, a, I guess, a, a normal on-air presenter. And finally, Kevin, two albums that you believe were the soundtrack of your teenage years. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, I think was the first album I ever bought. So yeah, that would be that would be it. And the other one would probably be Cosmos Factory, Credence. Um, two great albums, uh, albums that I flogged to death. I reckon I went through a second copy of each and then was lucky enough to play them on the air as well at the same time. So they'd be the two albums that make up my, uh, my teenage soundtrack. Yes, there's probably a couple of dodgy ones in there too. Hey, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing some memories from a great career at some of this country's most iconic radio stations. Hey, and good luck with the various projects you're working on at the moment. Anything in particular happening that you can tell us about? Uh, yeah, I've actually I've just signed a deal to do a radio show in, uh, in 2021, so I can't say where, when, how, why, but it's going to happen, and it'll be uh, towards the end of February, so um, look out for that. Hey, we will indeed, Kevin. Thanks very much for your time again today. Thanks, Paul. Good on you. Take care. Kevin Hillier on Pilots of the Airwaves.